This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tom? Well, today we're going to go into something that's kind of a little bit uncomfortable, like to talk about in our country, in the United States. So we're talking a little about isolationism, particularly during World War II. But, you know, these ideas are still out there today because we always want to remember ourselves being on like the right side of that war. But there was a lot of people or a movement of people that were really rooting for the other side of that war and wanted us to be on the other side. When I talk about the other side, I mean the Axis, the Nazi side. So we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. And it's kind of a forgotten thing. It's mentioned, but not really as much as really it should be in history because it doesn't necessarily always fit the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, and we're still the good guys, obviously, Tom. Yes. Right. No, I'm not <laughs> saying anything negative, but there were people that said, yes, and America's great, but we should be helping the Nazis. We shouldn't be helping the British. And it was more of those people than people probably want to recognize. Yeah, like thousands. And actually, speaking of the fact that we are from New Jersey, and we're recording this, obviously, in New Jersey, but New Jersey had one of the major camps of American Nazis. Yeah. Training grounds in uh, Sussex County, northern New Jersey, which is has been read about a lot. Yeah, then they have like something on the cliffs. They were going to build something there. Yeah, that was yep, yep, that yep. was also. They were also doing that in California, I think, too, at one point. Yeah, so more Americans support a Hitler than you may think. And uh, this is our podcast today. We're going to talk about American Nazis. I feel like it's just. I never want to say the word fun when it comes to Nazis because it's Nazis, but it's like it's it's fun to beat up on the Nazis. And I think every time someone like, you know, when you have like, you know, Indiana Jones or anything, it's like, all right, this is a Nazi podcast. We're going to bring them down again. Well, look at all those successful video games. You shoot Nazis like it's just it's part part of that mythology. Like very few people are going to be like, yeah, well, actually, the Nazis, no, they weren't. It's like, you can't make yep. that argument rationally. Exactly. But there are people who still make those arguments irrationally, which we'll talk and about. And we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. But even back then, before everything that is known about the Nazis, even if the stuff that was known, they still were like, yeah, well, all right, well, they do some bad things, but you know what? Overall, yeah. they like their message. So Nuts. that's what we'll talk about a little bit today. So I'm going to start off just kind of getting us uh, caught up a little bit on what is fascism, what is Nazism, like what is, what does it mean to be a Nazi, more like a broader term. And then from there, we'll transition into Nazism growing in America through really isolationism. We'll kind of touch upon that, you know, how the United States really since the beginning of its nation, of its independence, tended to be more isolationist and how that fed in to some Americans leaning towards fascism and Nazism. So experts basically agree that fascism is a mass political movement, right? It emphasizes extreme nationalism, militarism, and the supremacy of both the nation and the single powerful leader, right? Usually it's a, it's a one individual. Now, these fascist regimes are, as seen, most of them have come to fruition in early 20th century. Uh, the fascist regimes are revolutionary because they mostly advocate the overthrow of existing systems of government. And there's also a massive persecution of political enemies. That's kind of one of those like ingredients that comes into it. Very conservative, especially championing traditional values, right? When it comes to like role of women, social hierarchy, obedience to authority. And even though they, they typically claim fascist leaders typically claim to support like every man. In reality, they're, they're really not. They kind of align with very powerful uh, men and business interests. The most known fascist leaders were Benito Mussolini and Hitler, uh, which is kind of like our segue into Nazi party. But fascist leaders believe in supremacy of certain groups based on characteristics. Uh, these characteristics could be race, religion, ethnicity, or nationality. Um, in Hitler's case, the Nazi party advocated the, of the Aryan or basically white Germanic racial superiority. An example of this ethnocentric nationalism 
was the Nazi state-sponsored mass murder of Jews. Also, cult of personality, you have, besides this extreme nationalism, uh, fascist regimes cultivate images of their leaders, kind of as these great figures that should be loved and admired and Usually mass media and propaganda is what drives that forward. Hitler took this idea of fascism, this cult of personality and extreme nationalism, and added like a little bit of a popular mobilization into it. Well, yeah, Trump, yeah I mean, Treaty of Versailles everything too. Like he was able to play on people's how, how bad Germany was feeling, right? After the war, the depression yep. that was going on in Germany. You know, play on those fears, play on those insecurities. Here's this charismatic leader. Here's this guy who says everything's going to be all right. Just listen to me, follow my teachings. And he was playing on the anti-Semitism of the time too. So really fascism in Germany really played on so many other factors to come into play. And that was one reason why people didn't think it could happen here was he's like, no, that's not going to happen here because the situation isn't the same. But it was, there was a lot of similarity. What uh, fascism and Nazism usually clashes with is the fact of democracy. You don't want democracy. You don't want resentment no, to people. No, no it's right? free thought. That's not, that's not what it's to be. It's, it's supposed to be more blind obedience, not free exactly. thought. Nazi party created in Germany at the end of World War One, as you mentioned, being upset of what happened to Germany at the end of World War One. Uh, Hitler becomes its leader. And the Nazi party, which is a fascist government, is very anti-democratic. It leaves very little room for dissent. That's why you don't want to have a democratic. You don't want to hear what people have to say. And it strives for centralized power, right? Um, Authoritarian. It's very authoritarian in a sense. But at the same time, it does demand public participation in societies, except it has to be government sanctioned and organized so like drew the idea of to draw massive crowds right in the rallies and kind of stirs up enthusiasm for the country the party the leader but if any citizen comes under suspicion of refusing to take part in such activities like that's where nazis step in and they're like all right well we're gonna basically get rid of you because you're well, they're gonna not, force you yeah yeah they're yeah. gonna force you they're gonna kill you it's just the, the state is gonna do what it feels necessary to keep its agenda going that's why it seems like this could never work in the united states because the united states is like you know the opposite of what Nazi regime stands for. That's why they're like, this could never work in the United States where do you have free will, capitalism, democracy, and free press. Like this could never work in the United States. And it technically it didn't work in the United States, but, yeah, but, it, was, but it was a lot it closer. Was it was a lot more, it was an attempt. It was a lot more people. And it really didn't, there's a bunch of reasons why it didn't work too. And one reason was because these groups couldn't get organized, which we'll talk about, but it did get a lot of people to join. So you guys, you want to start with the American, yeah, it's the American fascists. Yeah. There's not really a, a exact time when you can say like oh this is when fascism started in america but the american fascist movement really i guess was in the 1930s 1940s so really when world war ii is gearing up and then actually going on before the united states was even involved in it there was a, still a pretty not strong but there was there was you know this fascist movement in the united states you have a huge german population in you have the a huge german population which doesn't mean they're all nazis so that's something that yeah. we got to obviously state, right? Even not all the Germans in Germany were Nazis. The vast majority wasn't. It's like the vast majority here, they're not necessarily they're Nazis at first, but they are pro-German. So they, there was this something called, right? It wasn't the earliest pro-Nazi American organization, but they did have the German-American Bund, right? Which was yeah. very successful. That's probably what we were talking about a little bit before. And that was actually founded in 1936. And its goal was to empower German-American citizens to spread what eventually will become Nazi ideology in the United States. And they create an American counterpart to German Nazi Party. So it's kind of, they create this American Nazi party. And they actually, we'll talk about a little bit later, but they had this huge rally in Madison Square Garden in February of 1939. We'll talk about it, but when you see pictures of this rally, it seems like something out of like a what if movie, you know? Yep. Idea here is this is happening subsequently. As Nazism is growing in Germany, Hitler comes to power in the 1930s, early 1930s. 
and spreads this idea of the Nazi party, the Nationalist Socialist Workers Party, which is a fascist party, ultra-nationalistic, um, centralized government party. The American version of it grows simultaneously in the United States. And the American uh, Bund movement, or also known as German-American Federation, really begins as another group in May of 1933, known as the Friends of New Germany. And that is really the beginning of the United States mirroring, or at least a group of people in the United States it's a group of people, yeah. what's happening in Germany. Yeah, one so, of this person was what Fritz right. Kahn, right? He was the German veteran of World War One, and he first immigrated to Mexico, then to the United States, and he became a citizen in '34. So you can kind of see the similarities, right? '34, what's what's going on? And he actually had a at its height, it was pretty large. He had 20 youth training camps. They had summer camps, so that kids would be doing that right now in the summers in Long Island, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey. You had all these um, areas, like you said before, in uh, Sussex Hills in New Jersey. They had this massive uh, German camp where they attracted over 40,000 people in 1939, where they would walk around with American flags and Nazi flags doing the Nazi salute. I think, and this comes into fruition, the Bund activities really is organized in 1936, right? March 19, 1936. That's when it's officially established. Yeah. Prior to it, it was a very loose organization known as, as I mentioned before, what it called Friends of New Germany. And the Friends of New Germany, it was authorized. Um, it definitely got help from a German consul in New York City. It basically merges a lot of different ethnic German organizations in the United States. And what ends up happening is it has a few hundred members, nothing really big. Its biggest presence is in Chicago. The organization was led by one particular guy, Nazi deputy Führer um, Rudolf Hess, actually gives the German immigrant, this one German immigrant and Nazi party member, Heinz Spanknobel, um, authority to create this American Nazi organization in 1933. So this is officially kind of allowed and sanctioned by the Nazi deputy Führer Rudolf Hess. He's like, you guys can do this in the United States. And what ends up happening is Heinz um, Spanknobel winds up opening up this Friends of New Germany, tries to mirror what's happening in Germany, rise of Nazism. And the New York, there's a New Yorker magazine and newspaper that is uh, in German, published by Germans for American Germans. And these guys actually storm Germany's paper and demand that it should publish pro-Nazi articles. Because at that time, in an American fashion, a lot of the, these articles that are being printed in this German paper are actually against Hitler. They're saying like, this is you know totalitarian government, so on and so forth. So this Friends of New Germany demands that they start publishing pro-Nazi articles. And they start kind of bringing together all these different German-American organizations under this one umbrella. There and they're is... allowed to do that. And they're allowed to print oh, yeah, those you... articles. Like, how can they do that? Because this is what this, obviously this is going on. The government's not as obviously aware of what's going on, right? Yeah. So the, they actually do create in um, 38, the uh, committee, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, right? HUAC, yeah. H-U-A-C. We'll hear about more of this in US history, obviously, went during the Cold War. They're going after communists, but they start out right around this time. And they do investigate these German-American buns and stuff, some of these people. And they kind of put stuff, they don't have the power to arrest any of them, but they kind of come to the conclusion that they're loud and racist and they're not happy about them, but that all what they're doing is protected under the First Amendment. So yes. they're like, all right, fine, you can do this stuff. We don't like it. We think it's in bad taste, but because we're a democracy, right, you're allowed to do this. And this is kind of what's helping them form and helping them spread their message is because they can't just be censored because it's a democracy. You have, you have, you have that freedom of speech. You have that yeah. freedom of press. So it's just seeing how like it's actually helping the rules of, of the democracy are helping these fascists, not from taking over, but spreading their message. Yeah, absolutely. The Friends of Germany officially turns into the bigger and more known German-American Bund when in 19... So first, in 1933, they're already using propaganda inside the United States. As you said, they're allowed. 
um, to counter Jewish boycott measures of German goods. Because in the United States, you have a lot of Jewish organizations that are actually boycotting German goods because of what's happening in Germany because of Hitler's policies towards the Jews. Again, this is pre-World War II. This is the 30s. And eventually what ends up happening is the leader of this Friends of New Germany group winds up being deported in October of 1933 because he doesn't register as a foreign agent, which means that you're working for a foreign government. This guy was technically given the authority to create this American organization by Nazi deputy Fuhrer. Therefore, he was carrying out interests of a foreign country while located in a host country. And he didn't officially register that. So they kind of the loophole found and they wound up deporting this guy. The United States immigration deported him. And that's when the Friends of New Germany turns into a bigger group, which is known as the German American Bund. And this is the one that kind of becomes the one that we know. Um, it very much mimicked regional administrative subdivision of the Nazi party itself, right? The actual American Bund divided the United States into three areas, right? You had the East, the West, and the Midwest. There was like a leader of each one. Um, the national headquarters as you mentioned before, is located in New York City. And these training camps were all over the place, including New Jersey. And it will basically, these rallies these guys held were Nazi insignias everywhere. But to make it seem like they were pro-America, I don't know if you read this, but everywhere there was a Nazi flag, next to it was the American flag. It was American flag. flag. Yeah, so they actually wanted to say, like, no, we're not... They really wanted to show, like, it's we're American, right? We're doing this for the good of America. We're the true American, true, the real Americans. And that's what they're going to start putting on their propaganda, too. It was never just a Nazi flag. It was always with the American flag, too. Later with George Washington, right, when he did at the rally we'll talk about. So it was all about kind of like mer like almost like a merging of these two, two. it seemed like. Did you see that weird thing? They were like, George Washington was the first fascist because he didn't believe that democracy would work. They started finding all these different well, writings well, by Washington. The same, it's the same thing that the Nazis used about the Aryan race, right? That they founded everything, they did this, that, right? It's the whole premise of Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> like when they're oh, looking yeah. for those lost arcs. But the idea is they're moving history or trying to shape history to fit their narrative. And it's, I mean, we talk about, doesn't this, this sounds familiar, like both sides or all political parties will do this in some way. You're going to try to twist things, right? Put that spin on it to make it seem like history supports your narrative over someone else's narrative. That's what they're doing, yeah. Well, actually, George Washington was a fascist. He didn't even like democracy. What? <laughs> but this is what they're, they were... Peeling. That's what they're they saying. And people were believing it. They're like, you know what? You're right. That makes sense. And so these guys, you like, during their... It, Hitler's salute was normal. Like, that's what they did. Um, they attacked uh, FDR, every any Jewish-American group communism i mean basically it took the think of like taking a direction sheet from germany and being like we're going to apply it and americanize the idea of fascism and nazism you know what really separates fascism and nazism is that big anti-semitic component and they definitely drive into that very anti-semitic component i don't know if you saw this or read about this one but its leader who you mentioned before the fritz julius kahn right who's yeah. this you know world war one um veteran from Germany, uh, he winds up actually traveling to Berlin in the 1936 Summer Olympics, which you guys could go back and listen to the podcast on that one. And he winds up visiting the Reich uh, Chancellery where he takes a picture with Hitler. So that kind of legitimizes this idea of like, look, here I am, the leader of the, Amer the German American Bund taking a picture with Hitler. And this is very much distributed throughout American. Press. Yeah, well, they, he was trying to make it seem like he was getting direct instructions from Hitler. Like that's but kind of he, he wasn't. Was. He was. Hitler didn't even know who this guy was for the most part. Exactly. But and the U.S. government realized that pretty early on. But he, that didn't matter what the U.S. government knew. It mattered what the people were thinking. So the exactly. fact that a lot of his supporters were thinking, well, Hitler actually knows this guy. He's calling him, right? He's giving him the information and stuff like that. 
he's in that inner circle, which he was not. But just having that image of it is what, again, was rallying a lot of these people to that cause. But what's interesting is because he was playing that up so much. He got in trouble, too. He got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, he got in trouble with the United States, but also Germany, because the German ambassador to the United States, right? Uh, Dick, Dickenhoff or Dickenhoff, something like that. Hans Dickenhoff. He winds up saying, like, wait a second. So he does have a line directly to Germany and Hitler because he's a German ambassador to the U.S. Um, he winds up basically going back to the Nazi regime in Germany. And it's like, all right, this group's a little insane. Like, they're, like, trying to be like us but there are a bunch of german americans some of them have really no german background they're just americans and this guy's playing it off like he knows hitler so from that point forward you actually have germany and the nazi regime kind of distrusts the german american bund and literally at no point is there any financial or verbal support no, no. coming from germany this is all no, like- germany's yeah they got their own problems they got their own things that they're working on they're not worried about what's going on in the united states at this point yeah, you know. So the, that's the last thing they're worried about. Is some they seem as kind of just like a wannabe, like a loser. So they, exactly, not, it's an embarrassment to to Germany. It's an embarrassment, yeah. So they, they're not getting involved in this. So they don't want to look like they're trying to conspire or anything against the U.S. At least at this point, they yeah. like like the fact that the U.S. is still isolationist, right? They're staying out of the war, which we'll get into that because that's a whole other movement during oh, yeah. this time. So they're just like, yeah, let that, let them just do their own thing. And like you said, it's it's growing, and they're probably the biggest thing we talked about. It, but it was in Madison Square Garden when they actually mm-hmm. it was called a mass demonstration for true Americanism, right? And it had those imagery, not alongside, you know, there was Nazi imagery alongside American imagery alongside anti-Semitic rhetoric. So it was very much anti-Semitic, without a doubt. So they, they had signs that said, wake up America, smash Jewish communism, stop the Jewish domination of Christian Americans. So like there was still, you had a lot of that. It was in New York City. So obviously the mayor of New York City was Jewish at the time, Mayor LaGuardia, yeah. going against him saying, you know, he's, he's just a Jew. You know, we have to overthrow him and stuff like that. And what's crazy is you have these giant banners Okay, I'm talking about like what, 33 feet long banners in Madison Square Garden of George Washington with swastikas on either side. So, so again, they're, they're promoting it. And you have over 22,000 of these supporters there all like cheering and listening to speeches and stuff like that with this giant. And you can see the picture of it. It's crazy. And I don't want to think that it just happened and no one knew about it. Like this was there were a lot of protests. So the, the mayor actually had to put he's like, listen, it's freedom of speech. They're allowed to do this. Right. So they had a thousand. He, he ordered a thousand police officers to like the surround. There was Thousands of people there protesting it. So you had oh, over 100,000 protesters gathering the streets around saying, you know, drive the Nazis out of New York City. They were worried. Some people were worried about like people um, trying to smoke them out with gas masks. So you can always, you can see all these pictures. And this one person actually jumped on stage and screamed down with Hitler and he got beat up by all yeah. the, um, the basically stormtroopers that were there before police came and stopped it. So the police were there too. So you have all these like basically American Nazi stormtroopers on one side. You have the protesters, you have the police who are trying to just keep order. Right and protect both sides as they're giving these speeches and stuff like that. But it's probably like the high mark of American um, Nazism in the 1930s, anyway. February of 39. In a few months, the war is going to start. Yeah, and that changes everything. That it's, changes it's, everything. it's interesting. You, you know, you mentioned this earlier. This idea that like the United States democracy actually allows for groups like yeah. this to exist. I mean, look at the KKK rallies down. You know, Pennsylvania Avenue, yeah. just same thing here. You're looking at German American Bund parading. Well, one you know, of the Nazis I saw, the, they actually had people dressed up as Nazis outside of Disney World. I did you see that. that, those pictures. Yeah. So, I mean, it's that freedom of speech, which if you limit it for one, you got to limit it for all. So, you know, it's why it's, it's extended and it's got its reasons and its merits, but it does allow, and this is a topic of conversation. I'm not saying get rid of it, obviously, but, yeah. you know, that free speech up until as long as they're not preaching violence, right? It's actually allowed. And they're not, you can say the hate speech, theoretically, right? You can say what they were saying about Jewish people, 
as long as they're not advocating the violence of it, no. it's legal under the First Amendment. And that's what's going on here. It's a very it's a topic of discussion, without a doubt. But this is also and this is the beauty of democracy and, you know, a, a republic is that it is also laws and legislation that brings about the end of this and the decline. So just like the laws and legislation allowed for this to rise, it is the laws. It's almost like the United States political system kind of self-regulates itself. What ends up happening is the decline of the German-American bond happens because of essentially two laws, the 1940 Selective Service Act and the uh, U.S. tax laws, um, specifically the New York tax laws. So in 1939... New York tax investigation determined that Kuhn, the actual leader of the German-American Bund, winds up embezzling $14,000, which is equivalent to almost $300,000 today. The New York district attorney does prosecute him and basically cripples the Bund in a sense that he sentenced its leader, I think it's two and a half to five years in prison, for tax evasion and embezzlement. Basically, the investigation is now open against the Bund itself for embezzlement and tax evasion. They're looking into and officially investigating this group crazy yeah and all this was going on when in uh nazi the nazis invaded poland september yeah, 1939 september, yeah, yeah. so it's that's happening at the same time so now the war is actually going on i mean america is still officially uh neutral but then by um by 1941, obviously, by December of 1941, every member, every bund leader was jailed as or interned as what's considered a dangerous alien. And yeah. then in 1942, it was actually outlawed. The German-American bund was outlawed because now the country's at war. Yeah. So now you're actually supporting that. And then Kuhn was actually, um, his citizenship was revoked and he was deported to West Germany in 1945. Yeah. And a lot of this really starts with a peacetime military draft in 1940, which is the 1940 Selective Service Act. Basically, it says that uh, war war started in Europe. We're not at war yet. We all know this, right? December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. We're not there yet. But Congress does enact this peacetime military draft, which people have to register for. And the Bund, the German-American Bund, winds up counseling its members of draft age to evade conscription. Like, yeah. they're basically telling them to commit a criminal offense, or uh, which is punishable by up to five years in prison and like a $10,000 fine, because you have to register for the draft. Yeah, the Bund is... Yeah, exactly. And the Bund is officially going against an American law. So they're telling people, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And that's what gets the authorities, the United States authorities to be like, all right, boom, like we're going after the Bund because they are actually, um, you know, against conspiracy to violate the 1940 Selective Service Act. And that's how they get a lot of these members arrested because of that simple fact. Then you have the House Committee of Un-American Activities, which you mentioned before, which is a little different from what it becomes in the 50s, where it's trying to find communists. This not here yet. This time, House Committee of Un-American Activities is looking at anyone that would detract from American, um, especially when the war starts in 41, anyone that would detract from Americans' ability to win the war. So anyone, any espionage, anything that could somehow hinder America's progress. Yeah, yeah. Anything like even saying things that you that they don't want to hear, right? Look what happens with the Japanese Americans when they get uh, interned and stuff like that in the internment camp. So this is going everywhere. Did we ever do a podcast or not? I feel like we haven't. Oh, we've mentioned it, but yeah. I don't think we we should. We should. We, we should. at one point we definitely will um, go into that. But so you're seeing this. So it was the collapse. The German American Bund is collapsed, but it was not the end of pro Nazi movements in the United States. Nope. One of the big ones was the American First Committee, which is we talk about a little bit. Mainly because he, it was their spokesperson was Charles Lindbergh. 
which yep. we talked about before, the famous pilot. So these guys ends. The bond really, really ends in 1941. Yeah, they're done. They're done. We, all the leaders are arrested going against the Selective Service Act. But now you have like a, a there's no Nazi in the name. And we're not saying these guys are all Nazis, but the America First Committee kind of picks up where the other guys leave off, right? So yes. you want to kind of go into that a little bit? Um, yeah. So basically, what they they said they their their basically idea is they were found nineteen forty, and their idea is let's we have to stick to isolationism and Nazi appeasement. Just give the Nazis what they want. So they supported that. So Lindbergh would cross would go to different countries, he'd hold rallies. He he was not in favor. He did not like Roosevelt. Um, he said that the American, he actually, this is Charles Lindbergh, he actually said, listen, American Jews are pushing the country closer to the war. Um, but the American First Committee, too, dissolved once the United States entered officially World War II. They were still pushing for all these things um, without saying we're Nazis, because they, they want, it was more of just like, let the Nazis do what they want to do over here. We're worried about what's going on in the United States, right? We shouldn't be getting involved in another European war, which was still a very strong settlement. There was this huge isolationist settlement up until, you know, those first bombs dropped at Pearl Harbor. Yep. Um, yeah. So this was like a mini, it really only lasted for uh, a, a few year. years. Yeah. But the fact that Charles Lindbergh was the spokesperson, there was actually rumors that he was going, a lot of those um, German Bund members that joined the America First Party, these very similar ideologies. And he was trying to get a lot of these, I'm not just going to say, like, it's not, not pro-German, but anti-war groups together. Well, and they and were he, also anti-Semitic. They were pro-fascist, yeah, anti-Semitic views. Anti-Semitic war. There was talk of him actually running for president. What, what could have happened if he, they could have gotten organized in time, ran for president, could he have defeated Roosevelt? Probably not. What would have happened could have been interesting. I know there's a lot of, like, fan fiction, these historical narratives written out if Lindbergh was president, how different. Yeah, Harry, Harry Turtle, though, wrote one, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He, he wrote a lot of those, yeah. Yeah. Um, so this one also kind of dies uh, with in 1941, uh, late 41, with the attack on Pearl Harbor. At that point, it's very illegal to hinder America's progress when we are now at war. So you are going to be persecuted for things. And number two, it's almost like you'll now be shunned by community members if you support our enemies. Before this, like Germans are not killing Americans, right? Now no, Germans no. are killing Americans. Now, yeah, now we're actually fighting. There's, yeah, we're on North Africa, right? The high seas in, in the Atlantic. So that's happening. So yeah, they're fighting each other. So it's at that point, these things pretty much end. But that doesn't mean that Nazism in America ends. And if we look at Nazism in America after World War II and kind of bring us closer to today, a lot of a lot of Nazis, real Nazis from Germany, immigrated to the United States. Some were actually brought in specifically by the United States federal government, interesting enough. Others kind of just snuck in through the cracks. But at least early on, some people believe that there was close to like 10,000 Nazis that made it to the United States after World War II. And since then, a lot of historians have kind of debated that number. They think maybe it's a, it's a little too large. But a lot of Germans at the end of World War II did wind up coming Nazi war criminals to the United States. Maybe not 10,000. However, still probably in the thousands. The legal road for a lot of Nazi leaders to come to the United States started with what becomes known as Operation Paperclip. And that basically you know, is a whole other thing. That's a very deep, that's a like, very deep. Should, I mean, I don't even, there's plenty of podcasts out there on it. Yeah. So paperclip basically, it winds up finding German Nazi scientists and engineers. Like we go out there and find them. Bring them in for our missile programs, our space programs. We want to get them before the Soviets do. This is the Cold exactly. War's going on. Paperclip is a big thing with that, um, obviously. 
So yeah, we paperclip is basically this program of bringing Nazi scientists, engineers, you know, people that created V1, V2 rockets. And these are the guys that get us to the moon. I mean, that's, let's not beat around the bush. That's basically what happens here. Um, also in 1948 and 50, we created a Displaced Persons Act and Refugee Relief Act of 53, um, where we wind up bringing like, you know, former Nazis uh, are basically entering through this Displaced Persons Act and Refugee Relief Act. And at that point, you would think the United States would be like, wait, these guys were Nazis at one point. But we are so concerned in 1950s with the Cold War that we're so anti-communist. So we're almost like, well, these guys are not communists. So like, let's get them in there. There's several- well, remember, there was even talk of let's teaming up with, you know, loose talk, team up with the Germans, not Nazis, team up with the Germans after World War II, after we beat them and let's go invade Russia. Let's go invade yep. Soviet Union. We talked about that. We talked about some of those invasions, right? We talked about Patton. Like, that yeah. Like- operational thing. But like, you know, the Germans are going to be our allies now, right? They're beat. They're our allies now. We have to go. It's, it's, it's all going against the Soviets. But so they bring a lot of these people over and that... I'm not saying everyone who comes is a Nazi, but there still had Nazi sympathizers here, right? Yep. You do have a lot of people who will go to, let's say, South America, and then slowly over time come to the United States again, right? And will bring a lot of this, uh, these ideologies to them. And then also, just as time goes on, you have a lot of this glorification. That's the face of World War II in the West, but also with that, you're going to get some glorification of the other side in World War II, which is Hitler. Yep. It never gets to such an extent as the uh, German-American Bund. It never gets to that level. But they do still exist today. Yeah, to this day, absolutely. But also the United States, the Immigration and Naturalization Service in the 50s starts to basically look for and do investigations to try to find the possibility of any Nazi collaborators living in the United States. And they wind up finding a decent amount. And then what you wind up having is um, in 1970s, the Immigration and Naturalization Service has thousands of cases of former Nazis in the United States to the, to the point that they actually wind up forming, the U.S. government winds up forming the Office of Special Investigations to find Nazis. It well, that's because there was a, um, so many of them, like you said, there was actually American Nazis, they attempted to march in Illinois in 1978, in that same year. And that's what kind of sparked the government to do something. They're like, wait, there's this many that they want to actually, it was, it was shut down, but they're like, if this is this many, something's going on, you know? Yeah. So there's neo-Nazi, the rise of neo-Nazism kind of starts, like you said, late 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, uh, definitely takes a lot from the Nazi doctrine, right? So ultra-nationalism, racism, xenophobia, homophobia, huge in anti-Semitism, anti-communism, um, this idea of like creating the Fourth Reich. Um, a lot yeah, of these yeah. neo-Nazis are also Holocaust deniers, you know, like- that Well, they'll, they'll argue that never happened. Oh, there's other ones that um, actually are out. I was remember reading an article- talking about how in 2017 there was a, a rally that was called Unite the Right Rally in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, and they were chanting anti-Semitic slogans, right, carrying torches, and they had these flags that actually said um, Camp Auschwitz, and it, you see, you'll see these letters, right, 6MWE. What that means was 6 million wasn't enough. So they're saying this, and you have the, the Holocaust deniers. You also have the ones to say, yeah, the Holocaust happened, but, you know, it was a good thing. You know, which is sick as in everything that that is. Yeah. That's, you know, six million was not enough. That there should be even more. And these ideologies and this rhetoric is still there. So it starts in the 1930s, but it is still around today. And it, this um, American Nazi movement is—I'm not going to—I guess not strong, but it is prevalent. And it is—it does exist. I'm pretty sure the Nazi um, right, super far right neo-Nazi political parties run every four years. They run someone. They run someone for the president. You'll see, yeah, it's bad. They run someone. I, I'm sure they, they have a website. I'm not going to it. I, I, 
I made sure to stay away from that doing the research one on this. Yeah. But it, it does exist and stuff like that. And, you know, it's legally allowed to exist. There's nothing saying they can't have, they can't have that rhetoric. But yeah, I no, mean, it, it's it's not what it was. Probably, I'm surprised at how, not that it's big, but how much it, it does exist, you know? It still exists. Just a sheer fact yeah. that it still exists. Just because of all the knowledge out there, like how could you support something like this? But people just, you know, for whatever reason, it resonates with them whatever you want to call it. April 20th is like Hitler's birthday is considered a holiday by these people. No, that's right. I mean, American Nazi Party was one of the more famous ones. It was founded in 1959. It lasted all the way until like, you know, late, like I guess 1990s. Um, it was an official political party, the American yeah. Nazi Party, A and P. Um, that to me is kind of crazy too. Didn't Kanye West identify as a Nazi? Yeah, he said something. I'm pretty sure he, like 2022, he's like, those things, I'm, yeah, I'm but he was... Well, well, you always have those people that I guess I remember the, the ex-owner, I forgot her name, but she used to own the Cincinnati Reds. And she said, you know, if you actually look, Hitler wasn't such a bad guy. He did a lot of so, good things uh, up until yeah. 1930. And they're like, no, you, that's it. No, so like, it, that's not how it works. She, I don't know if she had to sell the team and stuff after that. So you always have, you have these people that have these beliefs. And that's why I think it's important to study history and look back at history and look at these things, but also to understand that people are going to interpret things differently. I guess, right? And they're going to look at them and they're going to form their opinions. And you're allowed to have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. And I think that's what's important to understand. You can believe what you want, but you should base those beliefs on facts and don't skew the facts just to fit a narrative that you want to fit. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense. Um, so yeah, we're not going to tell you guys to go find these these uh, parties out there, but they do exist. Um, the American Nazi Party pretty much died out. I think the last legitimate neo-Nazi party is the National Alliance. I think it's still somewhat, I think by 2020, they said it's still visible in the United States, but it's got less than like thousand members, um, official members that belong to a neo-Nazi group. They do have online social networks, which is, again, that's part of what we said. Democracy, it allows for that thought, regardless of whether it is good thought or bad thought. I think that pretty much sums up our podcast on American Nazis. There it goes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more with it, obviously, but we're not going to give these groups, you know, yeah. airtime, whatever you want to call it. Not that we're like, like massive media outlet, but you know what I mean. We're not going to talk to these things. But yeah, even as of 2022, 2023, we are now, you're still going to see this stuff, uh, flyers, posts. I know I have students once in a while. It's like, yeah, you know, they, these things keep on popping up or um, someone was passing out these flyers one, one day. I'm like, really? So it's even in New Jersey, it's white supremacy, that neo-Nazi vibe and parts of it so it's 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 there you'd be surprised just how i'm surprised how close it is to even where we live you know yep absolutely well as always guys thank you so much for listening to our podcast we do appreciate it if you need to find us you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast please feel free to send us an email you know with any suggestions you might have we do appreciate those and make sure you follow us on any social media outlets so that's it guys and we'll see you guys next week stay safe everybody hope everyone enjoyed our podcast and if you would like to email us you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com